0: I'm Chad Main, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology, innovation in the legal industry, and the impact tech is having on the law. On today's show, I have a conversation with Dr. Heidi Gardner of the Harvard Business and Law Schools. We talk about a recent book, Smarter Collaboration, and the lessons from it about the importance and benefits of collaboration among legal teams and across all organizations generally. Before I started my current company, Percipient, I practiced law for quite a while. I was a litigator. And one thing I couldn't get my head around was how siloed things were at my law firm. For instance, I was in commercial litigation. We had a really strong labor and employment practice. But there was really no overlap between clients, nor was there ever really any kind of organized attempt to get more work in different practice areas from the clients that we had. I think a lot of law firms still operate this way. And I think just in general, many business organizations are siloed like that. Our guest today is Dr. Heidi Gardner. She's a professor at both Harvard's Business School and Law School. She's written two books, Smart Collaboration and Smarter Collaboration. And I heard about the latter book a few months ago at a legal seminar put on by the Legal Value Network. After reading it, I really wanted to get her on the show. Both books, Smart Collaboration and Smarter Collaboration, are germane to the legal industry because although Dr. Gardner is not a lawyer, she spent a good chunk of her career studying collaboration in professional service firms, including many law firms. So that's why she's not only on the faculty of the Harvard Business School, and she's also on the faculty of the Harvard Law School. For instance, a couple of the courses she teaches have titles like Understanding Law Firms as Businesses or Working in the Law Firm of Today and Tomorrow. Why is collaboration across different disciplines, legal practice groups, or business units important, you might ask? Well, for one, it creates better client outcomes, and that improves revenue and profits. But as we will also hear from Dr. Gardner, collaboration doesn't just make clients happy and improve the bottom line, it also fosters real diversity and reduces enterprise risk. If you think all this might be pie in the sky, ivory tower stuff, think again, because Dr. Gardner has some cold, hard data to back this up. For instance, this will be of interest to any of you out there working in intellectual property. Back in the 70s, 60% of U.S. patents went to individual inventors. Nowadays, that number's flipped, and the vast majority of patents are now awarded to teams. And in fact, the more diverse the backgrounds of those teams, the more successful the innovations are. As noted, Dr. Gardner's not a lawyer, nor has she ever had a, a quote-unquote official career in legal. But she's learned a lot about legal from all those hours she logged studying the inner workings of law firms. But prior to entering academia, Dr. Gardner did a stint with McKinsey & Company, but actually started her career at Procter & Gamble. I was there
1: for only three years. I was a sales leader, actually. So I joined the sales function. And before I knew it, I had a team reporting to me, some of whom who had been at Procter & Gamble longer than I had been alive at that point. So it was tremendous leadership experience, absolutely jumping into the deep end. But the good news about working with P&G is they've got these incredible training and development programs. And so I felt like even in three short years, I learned an enormous amount and I actually left P&G in order to take a Fulbright Fellowship in East Germany. So didn't leave because I had uh, dreams of, you know, working at a different big company, but dreams of doing something totally different.
0: Was this right out of college? You worked for P&G? It was, yes. And when you said you had older people reporting to you, was there pushback? Was there kind of a any friction? Or how did you handle that?
1: Well, you know, I was a very inexperienced leader, obviously. But <laughs> I did know enough to encourage people to give me lots of feedback. And it was somewhat unusual for some of these folks. You know, they weren't sure that I was serious about it. (laughs) And we really quickly got on the same page that they understood the better I became at my job, the better it was going to be for them. And so we had this shared goal of making me a better leader sooner. And that helped us build some trust so that they actually did start giving me some you know, pretty powerful feedback. And I'd like to think that I was receptive to it and learned really quickly. But I don't think there was much pushback. It wasn't terribly unusual to have relatively junior people become leaders quickly at P&G. It's one of the magical ways that they actually promote people. But for me, it was a brand new
0: experience. So you go in this Fulbright scholarship and then you end up at McKinsey. What was your discipline at McKinsey?
1: So in between those two, I did my first master's degree at the London School of Economics. And I was working in McKinsey at the intersection between strategy and organization design. And I worked primarily in the London office. I was at McKinsey for five years total. And most of those were in the London office. I spent a full year in the Johannesburg, South Africa office as well. And in each of the places that I worked, I had this incredible privilege of engaging with people from a huge variety of cultures. Again, the experience that most of my clients were considerably more experienced than I was. And what I had on my side was the McKinsey methodology and reputation and leadership. And so you put all of that together and I felt decently equipped to be advising clients, even though I wasn't anywhere near the kind of expert that they were. Tremendous learning
0: experience for me. At what point in your career are you started to think about teaching? I actually
1: had been thinking about teaching since I was about seven years old. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> Literally. Yeah.
1: Like in, in first grade, I can't remember how it happened, but I remember setting up a program so that in first grade I went back and quote unquote was a teacher for the uh, kindergarten kids. Right, and so it's something that's always been in my blood. Um, It's always been a huge passion for me. I put myself partly through Penn undergrad by teaching and moonlighting on the side. I uh, when I went and studied in Japan, I got a full scholarship to the Japanese university by teaching students in Japan, and so I had a a lot of opportunities to hone my teaching skills. It's something that's always been incredibly valuable to me: is learning and teaching. And when I was at McKinsey, I realized there were lots of questions that went unanswered in the areas that were directly in you know, my area of, of biggest curiosity. Things like why some teams were so much more effective than others at using the full complement of their members' expertise. I kept seeing examples where two teams that were ostensibly equal in terms of their brain power and their diversity and so many other factors would produce really different results. And I, didn't have the time at McKinsey to explore it. And that's why I ended up going off and doing my PhD. And with that, had the knowledge that it would end up putting me back on that teaching and research path that I was so involved in and interested in.
2: Do you
0: come from a family of educators? Is it in your blood? Is that why you're so interested at seven years old?
1: It's not. I actually come from an area of the country that is not particularly intellectually Curious, I grew up in Amish country in Lancaster, <laughs> Pennsylvania, and at the risk of offending anyone there, I will say it has changed radically in the decades since I've left, but my experience growing up there was that it was a place that was more interested in say tradition than in equipping people to ask tough questions of grown-ups and pursue education and and, you know, the intellectual path. So my parents are really to credit for my desire to go on to, to higher education. That was almost never a question in our family. It was, a, you know, it was a question where would I go, not if I would go to college. So I am grateful for their incredible sacrifices they made to, to, you know, help my brothers and I as first gens get into college. I don't know where the desire came from to do the teaching. It's probably just the flip side of me being such a nerd. that uh, I loved learning so much that we figured, you know, helping other people learn must be the best thing ever.
0: And what was the first collegiate-level teaching job you got? You were working at Penn, but, you know, after school, what was the first job you had?
1: So the first teaching I did at the graduate level was when I was still a doctoral student at the London School of Economics. uh, Sorry, London Business School. So my first teaching experience at London Business School, I was a doctoral student there, was at... Oxford University. One of my co-authors was a professor there. He and I joined forces and taught an MBA class on consulting skills. And so that was my first opportunity to teach at the MBA level. I did a bit of teaching at uh, London Business School while I was there. And then I joined the faculty of Harvard Business School
0: after I had earned my PhD. You taught both at and teach at Harvard at, at the business and the law school, right? I do now. Yeah, absolutely. So I understand why you teach at the business school, but it was of interest to me, and obviously it's a legal-facing podcast. Why did you also start teaching at the law school?
1: I mean, the short answer is they needed somebody. (laughs) Um, There is a dearth of people at any law school, I would say, who are interested in the practice of law as opposed to the thinking of law. And when I say the practice of law, I mean, you know, really running the law firm and being a leader in a law firm, and issues around strategy and the financial side and talent development. And those are the areas that I'm most passionate about. People, of course, are deeply expert in areas of the law from the particular legal discipline side. But when it comes to actually engaging as a lawyer or a business professional inside a law firm, not that many people are either
0: interested or qualified to teach at a law school in those topics. There's not that many classes out there, definitely not programs. I mean, we're starting to see more over the last, we'll say, 10 years. You get CEOs of law firms, and things like that. They're, they're kind of changing the way they're thinking about the business. But if there was one thing you wanted your students to come away from in the, the understanding of the law firms, a business class, what was that? What What were you trying to convey to them and impart to them?
1: I really wanted students to understand as much as possible what excellent client service really means. because I'm afraid that for many junior lawyers, their experience as an associate is getting handed work without the context for it. And there's so many levels oftentimes removed from the client who receives it and experiences it and and frankly buys it and any of the strategic conversations that go with it that I wanted to get students to be curious about what the client experience was and what role they could play in generating a more involved, strategic, business-focused client service experience.
0: And then at some point, you start a consulting practice and you also study professional service firms. So let's, but let's talk about the consulting practice. Why and when did you launch the consulting practice?
1: Goodness. It's hard to actually put the stamp on when. Very soon after I arrived at Harvard Business School, I started getting requests to do outside work. And at the business school, that's actually encouraged. It's one of the great things about Harvard Business School is they appreciate how important it is for the faculty there to be engaged with, quote unquote, the real world. So that what we are producing as research and what we're teaching in the classrooms is really grounded in the reality and the lived experience of people who are running these organizations. And so I was encouraged to do that. It helped that in my very first year at Harvard Business School, I was tapped to teach the one of the flagship programs there, the leading professional service firms, LPSF. And so I started teaching on that very rare experience for somebody in their first year as a junior faculty member to be teaching on a flagship executive program. But I did that And it gave me exposure to hundreds of high-level leaders in a range of professional service firms. And so a number of opportunities started coming out of the networks I was building through my executive teaching. And over time, a larger and larger portion of my energy outside of Harvard was devoted to serving clients myself. And over time, I ended up transitioning from making that a side gig to making it a bigger part of how I spend my time. And so these days, my title at Harvard is a distinguished fellow, which means that I'm not teaching the graduate students anymore. I teach neither the MBAs nor the JDs and LLMs, but rather focus exclusively on teaching executives. For me, that makes a lot of sense because the sorts of things that I teach around leadership and smarter collaboration Those are topics that really resonate with people who have experience working for a decade or more when they've got a lot of autonomy, choosing how to spend their time and they appreciate how hard it is to actually lead people. Those are the best audience for my work. And so my consulting practice has evolved over time. And I think officially we launched Gardner & Co. in 2018. I was on sabbatical from Harvard. I was spending a year in London. And uh, officially launched the business at that time. And it's when I started building it out to have full-time employees and a whole host of people who are in the ecosystem
0: that helped me deliver these client projects. You said two things that stuck out at me. So number one is you're back at P&G and you said what you learned from other people is that they were just as invested in your success as you were because it made them better and the team better. Then you also said there were times where you were looking at teams and some were better than others. So I assume... You've always had this interesting collaboration, and it seems like that's where the, the kernel was coming from to really pursue that as as an academic pursuit.
1: A hundred percent, absolutely. You know, at McKinsey, I had this experience again and again where some teams were simply more effective than others, and oftentimes they were teams that I was leading. So it wasn't a question of who the leader was. It was something way beyond that. And yeah, for me, digging into a question like that required me to immerse myself in it. And I ended up collecting enormous amounts of data. You know, I studied for my dissertation. I studied 110 teams, more than 600 professionals who were working in consulting and accounting and law firms. And I mean, the amount of data. Why
0: did you choose professional services? Is that because that's what you were working with at McKinsey or?
1: Two reasons. One is I had a very deep understanding of that industry, having worked on the inside. And which, of course, gave me credibility when I'd go back to these kinds of places and ask to collect some very sensitive data. Number two, professional service firms, at least at the time, were an exemplar of the kinds of places where smarter collaboration, as I eventually learned to call it, was taking root and having the most effect. So you had in professional service firms these practice groups that were embedded. Like I said, I worked at the intersection of the strategy practice and the org design practice at McKinsey. And so I always crossed those two practice groups and saw the power of the kind of interdisciplinary thinking. But in many, many professional firms, you have practice groups that operate as silos. And so bringing together experts across different practice groups, whether it's the, you know, the due diligence practice and the technology implementation practice in a big four firm, or whether it's the IP practice and the tax practice in a law firm, bringing together those different bases of expertise has so much power to serve clients on more sophisticated value-added problems that it seemed like a perfect hot house for me to research and experiment.
0: When we come back, Dr. Garter talks about her latest book, Smarter Collaboration, and how collaboration across teams generates better client results, fosters diversity, and helps the bottom line. I'm Chad Main, and you're listening to Technically Legal. All right.
2: We need to do more with less. That is the key takeaway nowadays from almost every survey of in-house counsel. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if you actually could do more for less? By combining legal expertise and technology, Percipient enables legal teams to get more work done for less. Buried in contracts and sales is frustrated with turnaround time? We can help with that. Did you just get hit with a subpoena and reviewing 100,000 documents and files will tax your resources or cost you a small fortune in billable hours? We can help there too. Our team of legal professionals leverage tech and project management principles with the right amount of human oversight to deliver precise, efficient, and cost-effective legal solutions. Whether it's legal operations and contract management support, subpoena compliance, or document review, Percipient is your partner in really doing more for less. Percipient. Legal services powered by technology.
0: All right, let's get back to my conversation with Dr. Heidi Gardner about her book, Smarter Collaboration.
2: And the reason I wanted
0: you to come on the show, and I was so interested in reading the book. And by the way, we've written two, Smart Collaboration and Smarter Collaboration. Highly recommend it. Was because I came up in a law firm for the longest time before I launched my current company and it was siloed. We, you know, for instance, there was a really strong labor and employment practice with great clients and a really strong commercial litigation practice, but There was a little bit of overlap, but just so many reasons it was just siloed and the attorneys didn't want to kind of collaborate. So that's why I was really interested in the book and reading and getting you on the show. I know there's many, many reasons we'll get into why collaboration is important. It helps profits, helps the bottom line, helps diversity, helps keep good people employed. But if there's one reason, just one reason only people should pursue collaboration and make it stronger their organization, what is that one reason?
1: clients. Full stop, right? I mean, clients increasingly recognize, expect even demand that their lawyers are better at the contextualizing piece. It's not enough anymore just to be the technical expert. You know, we were talking to the chief legal officer of a of a big organization and he said something like being responsive is client service 101. You don't get a gold star for it, he said. He said, what I expect is my advisors to have a deep grasp of my business and an even deeper grasp of my industry. And he said, you know, I want people to help me see around corners. And that demand for knowing my business, knowing my industry, helping me see around corners as in, you know, help me understand the trends and the risks and what I should be learning from other kinds of organizations sort of like mine, those are Demands inherently for lawyers to collaborate with each other or to collaborate with the business professionals. Because no lawyer, I don't care how smart she is or how experienced he is, can engage in that kind of strategic conversation with clients that's inherently bringing in perspectives from across the ecosystem and do it on their own. It's just impossible. But client service is so much richer. We have plenty of data to show that clients are stickier. You know, they're more loyal, they're more profitable when lawyers engage in these ways. And it really is a better experience for the client and a better experience for the client service professionals when they are operating across silos and creating more holistic solutions rather than just sticking in their lane and becoming a deeper and deeper and deeper technical expert. You know, that's important, but it's not enough.
0: Your book leads to two underlying reasons for what you just talked about there. You talked about industry knowledge, like bringing value to your clients about their industry, but also you said makes clients more sticky. Well, kind of take us in reverse order. Number one, as your book points out, it makes you more sticky and harder for the law firm to be fired if, you know, you do have labor and employment lawyers working on the company's business. You have IP people working on the business. Like there's more reasons for them to keep you on board. But the other thing that the benefit that your book points out is because clients want what you describe as sector knowledge, other information, you need collaboration to get this information to the client because your L&E lawyers are going to know something about some new law coming down the pike that you can tell your client about. Or your commercial litigators might know that there's a new type of litigation that might be facing them. So you need to get out of these silos to get that information so you can find the client. How do you encourage or what do you tell law firms and professional services companies to do to foster that type of communication so you can get that sector-level information out to clients?
1: I think it has to be clear to the professionals what's in it for me. Because some people are just inherently interested in an industry. One of the partners that I interviewed for my first book, I remember he said, I wake up every day and smell the coffee right? And his, you know, main client was Starbucks and some other coffee chains. And he just loved the coffee industry. He dragged his family on family holidays to, you know, only coffee-producing regions. and I mean, wow, like he just loved coffee and he lived and breathed it. So for him, it was obvious that he would, you know, be in the food and bev sector, et cetera. But for some people, it's not quite as obvious. And they need a more literal, close-to-home reason, something more pragmatic, perhaps. To understand what's in it for me. And so in order to encourage the kind of peer-to-peer engagement on sector-based, industry-based issues, people have to understand, A, that it's actually part of their job, and B, if they do that part of their job better, that they will be recognized and ultimately rewarded for it.
0: How should they be recognized? How should they be rewarded for that?
1: There's a number of different approaches. I'm a very strong advocate of having a formal industry group or sector
0: group initiative. Within your law firm or services organization?
1: Yes, absolutely. So take the law firm. I do not advocate blowing up the practice group structure and replacing it with an industry group. I think that's hugely problematic for a a variety of reasons. But I think the industry group structure should be a dynamic overlay to the practice group structure, sort of, you know, a different dimension, cross-cutting the matrix so that people from all of those different practice groups you just mentioned who do serve life sciences companies or transport companies or banking come together and talk about not just what do I know as an L&E lawyer about the regulation, you know, labor and employment regulation in the biotech sector, but what do I know from having served a whole bunch of these life sciences companies about bigger, broader business issues, ESG. You know, if every person listening to this podcast can't put their hand on their heart and say, I know how our firm's top 10 clients should react to ESG pressures from whatever institutional investors or politicians or other kinds of stakeholders. You know, if you can't raise your hand and say, yes, I absolutely have a point of view on ESG for our top 10 clients, I got to ask, like, where are you, Right? right? If you don't understand the impact that chat GPT or other, some of these other, you know, large language models and, and AI can have on the legal ecosystem. Again, where are you? What are you reading? Like, what are you keeping up with? Cause your clients need to know this. You know, the firms need to know it for sure, right. but clients also have to believe that their professionals, their partners who are serving them are, interested enough in what's happening in the world and interested enough and care enough about their clients that they then take that learning and take the next step and develop a perspective on it that says, I might not be right, I don't have a crystal ball, but here are three things that I think you should be thinking about at a bare minimum. And everyone, top to bottom, side to side in a law firm, should feel like it's their responsibility to stay on top of these things And because we don't have infinite amounts of time, pairing up with people, teaming up with people who have similar clients, similar types of clients based on industry is a really efficient and effective way to do that.
0: And we started this off with my question was, what's the one takeaway? And you said, bottom line, money, profits. Tell us about those studies you had that shows that more collaborative outfits make more money.
1: To be clear, I said it's clients. Um, Because I really want people to be thinking first about superior client service. And, oh, by the way, if you do that, the money will flow from it. Right. Guaranteed. Right. Like what I see. And the reason I'm sensitive to that, Chad, is that there are too many law firms out there that have quote unquote strategies that say something like increase revenue per lawyer to X and profits per equity partner to Y. Really? That's a strategy? (laughs) Like, that's not a strategy. I gotta be honest. I spent five years at McKinsey developing strategies for organizations and that isn't one.
0: It's an aspiration.
1: It's an outcome for Pete's sake. Like, this is not what you aim to do is financial engineering. You aim to deliver superior client service that is distinctive and differentiates you from the competition. And if you do that, you don't have to worry about the money flowing in, right? But if you spend all your time figuring out how to try to motivate people just by making more money, you're in a losing game, right? So first, you know, get a strategy that tells you how you're going to make that money. But let me come back to your question, Chad. I'll get off my soapbox. (laughs) Um, The way we know that collaboration, smarter collaboration is really a part of this, you know, we've documented this in study after study, law firms that are tiny, you know, a dozen partners to thousands, and in all kinds of organizations that are clients of our law firms. And so we know that engaging in this cross-silo working, bringing different brains together to tackle tough problems, it generates higher revenues and profits and other kinds of financial outcomes because client service is better. We've looked directly at how much better clients are served, and we can show that clients that have a collaborative team, you know, a team of lawyers serving them who are truly engaging in this integration of their expertise. They're more loyal in the long run. They're less likely to RFP. Some of the main projects, you know, they're going to sole source that work, which means it is incredibly profitable for the law firm because they don't need to spend all their time pitching for it. We also know that those clients are great references, and even if the GC leaves and goes to another firm, they're more likely to bring a law firm to their next organization if they've been served by a great team. So there's all kinds of great client outcomes associated with it. We can also show that enterprise risk is seriously reduced when people are working across silos.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that, because one of the things your book points out is risk reduction. How does that yeah. happen with strong collaboration?
1: Too often, risk is relegated to the risk function. But we know that when, say, a chief risk officer is deeply engaged and, you know, that chief risk officer's team is embedded with the business, whether that business is a law firm or a technology company or a chemicals company, when those risk functionaries are embedded with the business um, and can learn from and teach people in the business about risk, study after study shows that overall risk is diminished significantly. It happens because that interaction, that exchange of information is vital so that people in the risk function know what it is that they're managing. And people on, say, the business side of the house or on the, you know, the the partner side of the house really understand how the actions and decisions that they take affect the risk profile. One of the other big reasons that risk is mitigated through collaboration is that collaboration goes hand in hand with trust. And so when there's better collaboration, better interpersonal trust, better competence trust between risk professionals and the rest of the business, you have people on the business side confiding in the risk professionals. You have them asking for help. You have them involving the risk professionals earlier in decision making. And all of that adds up to a more robust risk function that's not only able to anticipate risk, but if something problematic happens, is able to respond quicker and more effectively.
0: Another thing you point out multiple times in your book is that not only does strong collaboration foster diversity at many levels, collaboration really doesn't flourish unless you have diversity, the diversity of opinions. And in fact, you said, The mindset I always have is the person that thinks differently from me, they know something different that I don't, and I can learn a lot from them. Tell us about that. Tell us how you need diversity for collaboration to flourish and why, as a result of that, it fosters diversity on its own. It's kind of like a flywheel almost.
1: Absolutely. So, again, let's start with the client. So when you think about what is top of mind for clients these days, And I can tell you what is top of mind for clients these days, because about two hours ago, I ran a session with several dozen corporate board members, and I was asking them, what are these VUCA challenges that your organization is facing right now? What's volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous, that really demands people coming together across different boundaries? And some of the top things that they talked about, geopolitical risk, the effects that it has on everything from reputation to supply chain to the financials. They talked about ESG. They talked about AI and some of the implications around chat GPT and, and so forth. So if you pick any of those major issues that are on the mind of corporate directors right now, well, if it's circulating in the boardroom, we have to believe that it is flowing down through the executive ranks. The GC is you know certainly going to be expected to have perspective and solutions addressing some of these different angles. So if we start with that, you say, all right, take ESG. Whose brain do you need in the brain trust in order to develop a more holistic perspective on some angle of ESG? And you start to think about the different stakeholders involved. You start to think about the different kinds of expertise that are necessary. You begin to think about the effects that it has on Reputation externally and on the ability to engage employees, it's very clear that there are very different kinds of people who need to come together to create a more holistic perspective of what ESG means for this company. And when you do that, you have to realize that if you get people in a room who have very different, say, life experiences, you, you know, maybe you have people from different age cohorts. I know you know, sustainability means something quite different to my teenage daughters than it does to, you know, me and my cohort of 50-somethings, right? And so bringing together different age cohorts, it's not enough just to have them in the room. We have to create the context where they are motivated to speak up, to contribute their perspective, and then we have to value that perspective and to the extent possible, use it to shape our decision-making. And that's what often falls down. You know, one of the chapters in our book is called The Illusion of Inclusion. It's because too often there's like fake inclusion going on. People tick the box because they say, okay, we have one of these types and one of those types and one of something else. Yep, we're really diverse. Move on. But what we demonstrate really clearly, again, with data and analytics, is that just having the people in the room or on the team doesn't guarantee at all that those people are contributing to their fullest.
0: Your book says sometimes they're just not asked. That's the illusion of inclusion, right? They're on the team, but no one's really asking them to roll their sleeves up, give some input, and offer some insights.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Or it could happen in a number of different ways. It could happen that they're, you know, on the team. They're like the boards of directors. You know, some people there were commenting that they don't feel like they are contributing their fullest in the boardroom because, Anything from their voices not being amplified by their fellow board members, they say something and it sort of just gets dropped and dissipated, you know, or sometimes they're outright interrupted and and so forth, right? that That kind of thing can happen. What we also find is that there are far less conscious ways that people get diminished in teams. For example, one of the analyses we did was looking at the proportion of women partners on certain client service teams compared to the number of hours that those women actually build on the client files. And it turned out that proportionally women made up a much greater extent of the team than their hours did of the total bill. And one reason for this is has been documented really clearly that women tend to underestimate the number of hours that they work, and men systematically overestimate (laughs) the number of hours. So there's bias built into the self-report on how many hours did we actually contribute. But beyond that, I think far more perplexing is that many of those women partners are tasked with far too many different things at once. And so they're not only asked to play a part on too many clients at any given time, but at the same point, they're also asked to spend time on DEI efforts and recruiting, and mentoring, and the comp committee, and, and, and. So you have people who are just spread entirely too thin. And in that case, it's not surprising that the piece that they play, the part that they play on any given client service team is less than what some of their male counterparts are doing who are not taking on these internal leadership roles and not asked to work on as many pieces at once.
0: This is kind of related, and I think I saw a post on LinkedIn that you made, and you said that um, collaboration skills are pretty rare in people, but especially among men. Why is that, and what have these studies found that men are just not as good as collaborating as, as others out there?
1: I have to say, I have never gotten more attention for a piece of research that I cited that I hadn't actually done (laughs) on my own. Um, There was a CNBC article that, you know, was uh, the headline was total clickbait, right? So um, people uh, uh, loved that. What the point of the article was is that not that men are worse at collaboration, it's that they spend less time on it. So I was actually citing a McKinsey study that looked at essentially the time and the effort that men put into collaborative endeavors inside organizations. And so it's very much related to what we were just talking about. Women are more likely, either because they're asked or because they volunteer, but they are more likely to spend time on things like committee work and firm building initiatives, whether that's recruiting or mentoring or diversity, etc. And so you take a look at what women are working on And in the article, we then, you know, kind of drew the connections. Women are spending more time on it. They're honing their skills. They're developing these skills and deploying them. Men just aren't spending as much time. So that was the essence of that piece.
0: Another thing that the book points out in in your posts and things you've said is that teams that can collaborate and figure out how to collaborate gain a major competitive edge over those that don't. And one example that you use is if you look at patents in the modern day, most are developed by teams.
1: Yeah, which was completely the reverse back in the mid-70s. So we looked at publicly available data of patents granted in the U.S. from the mid-70s until just a few years ago. And when that data set started, nearly 60% of patents granted were granted to a solo inventor. And that number proportionally has dropped by half. Less than 30% of patents granted now go to a single inventor. And at the same time, three-person patent teams have doubled in importance and seven-person patent teams have increased ninefold. You almost had known seven-person patent teams back in the 70s. And now they're, you know, a reasonably significant number of teams that get awarded patents. And so, you know, more or less what the data says is innovation is more of a team sport than ever. But the data chad that I just mentioned only talks about the number of people who are teaming up for an invention, what we know to be true is that when you look at who those people are, you look within the team, the more different those people are from one another by background, by training, by discipline, the more diverse that founding team is, it's not only more likely that they get a patent or that they have some innovative outcome, whatever they're working on, but more likely that that innovation is successful. So their patent, when they are a diverse team that has been awarded a patent, that patent is more likely to be cited more often. If you had a more diverse team who were writing an article together, that article is likely to be more cited. Um, If you have a more diverse team uh, working in a creative industry like Broadway, their outcome is more likely, that show is more likely not only to make it to Broadway, but to earn higher box office revenues and to garner more support and more awards from the critics. And so what we see is it's not just having more people. It's more of the right people. The diversity. The diversity, absolutely. It matters. The rub here, though, of course, as we all know, is that it's a hell of a lot easier to work with somebody who's more like me.
0: Yeah, right.
1: You know, that's why in the busy, busy, time-pressured world that many people experience, they don't collaborate, right? Because it's easier just to crack on and do it myself. And when we're teaming up with people who are different from us, we not only have to spend time investing and building trust with them, but also you know, mundane things. We have to learn their jargon. We have to figure out what time of day they prefer working, all those sorts of things. And at the end of the day, if we're in an environment that celebrates individual heroes, that gives the biggest bonus to the sharp-elbowed jerk who happens to bring in a large file, why would I bother? Why would right. I invest in that? Right.
0: As we close out the interview here today, I want to switch gears just a little bit because I like people have some takeaways, some practical takeaways. I'd like to ask you if you can give one piece of advice to start pushing for or developing collaboration in your organization. How would you do that? I want to break it down by at a personal level. What do you suggest, you know, you can do to make people themselves more collaborative, and at the organizational level. So let's start with personal. If there's one takeaway or one thing a, a head of a law firm can do right now to start fostering collaboration at a personal individual level, what is that?
1: We've developed a tool specifically for this. It's called the Smart Collaboration Accelerator for a reason, right? We believe this is the right place for people to start examining themselves to understand where their real strengths are. So this tool, it only takes 10 minutes. It's an online personal profile. Where can they find that, your website? Yeah, the smartcollaborationaccelerator.com, right? So this is a, a psychometric tool. People take this and they learn, it crystallizes for them what their natural tendencies are. How do they prefer working with other people? What kinds of problems are they attracted to? And by understanding in black and white, what their natural tendencies are, their sort of go-to ways of operating, the report that they get at the end then helps them understand how to take their natural ways of working and use it to their advantage. In other words, you know, what are the kinds of problems you engage in? What are the ways of operating when you can really be at your best? And beyond that, the tool becomes incredibly powerful when you have a group of people take it. So a practice group, a client service team, a a function. And having a bunch of people take this, they not only learn where their own strengths are in terms of collaboration, but they learn how to flex amongst the people that they work with. So if I'm a really hands-on person and I'm working with somebody who's incredibly hands off, how do I work with that person so that I take my tendencies to be deeply involved, you know, roll up my sleeves and get involved? How do I use that as a strength in our team because I'm going to be best placed to coach people, to spot errors before they grow too large, et cetera, whereas that other person is going to be you know, very hands-off, and they're going to probably be more visionary and bigger picture. And so if we appreciate those tendencies in one another, we become far better at operating much more effectively. I get to play to my strengths, she gets to play to hers, and together we are far more effective. So that tool is really helpful in getting people to understand that at a personal level.
0: And that's one thing you point out in the book, too. It's generally not about money. I mean, at many levels, collaboration is is not. But you keep good employees and you keep employees happy if they feel like they're doing something that feeds into their strengths, right?
1: A hundred percent. I mean, the data, you know, we draw on some of the Gallup data here, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of people and tens of thousands of teams. What we know is that when people... Are playing to their strengths like day in, day out. Their job is really drawing on their strengths. They are not only more productive, I think there's something like 14% more productive, but they're far more profitable, 23% more profitable, and they're 40% more likely to stay, which is powerful because at a firm level, by engaging people in what they do best and helping them show up as their most authentic, powerful, selves. That means that you're retaining folks who are your best performers, most profitable, serving clients better. So it has a huge number of self-reinforcing benefits, not just for those individuals, but also for their teams and ultimately for the
0: firm. So let's talk about at the firm level, the organizational level. If there's one thing a person can do right now to start fostering collaboration in the organization, what's that?
1: I'm going to give you the opposite. Okay. (laughs) Let me start with the what not to do. The what not to do is change your comp system. That seems to be the favorite hammer of everyone right now is let's try to engineer the comp system so that we can make people collaborate. And I can't tell you how many times firms have messed around with that response before they come to us and say, what do we actually need to do? So, you know, if your tendency is let's fix comp, I need you to just put the brakes on it right now. What we know is two things get in the way of figuring out how to get started. Number one, leaders are usually wrong, right? Full stop. Leaders say, oh, I know what's wrong with collaboration. It's like, no, you actually know what stands in the way of your collaboration, which is entirely different for somebody imbued with tons of power than it is for, you know, Joe Person in the law firm, right? So problematic that leaders have the wrong answer. It's also problematic because there's not a one-size-fits-all answer to this. So we've created a toolkit. You know, After half a decade of testing a methodology and refining it and honing it in law firms and all kinds of other professional service firms and companies and nonprofits and so forth, we've gotten down to some very clear steps that people can engage in that will help them unearth not only what the barriers are in their specific organization or institution, so they can knock those barriers on the head. But this process also allows them to unearth what we call bright spots. Where are those hidden gems, those kinds of people that really coalesce others around them and work together in the most powerful, smarter way? How do we unearth those examples and find out ways to replicate those? And so we've codified everything that we know about how to take these pretty methodical steps We've put them into a toolkit. It's published by our publisher, Harvard Business Review Press, as a companion to the book. And it takes people through step by step by step. How do you engage in one of these processes? How do you collect the data? I mean, it's down to the nitty gritty. Like if you want to survey people, here are the three lines you put in an email to explain confidentiality, et cetera, et cetera. Right? it, it is as turnkey as it can possibly be. And we encourage people to get a hold of that toolkit and figure out how to use that to really unearth what it's going to take to unlock collaboration specifically within their firm, given their culture, their history, their strategy, and their growth aspirations.
0: Dr. Gardner, this has been great. There's so much more I wanted to get into, but I know we have a limited amount of time. If you want to direct people to learn more about your consulting, about your classes, about these toolkits you've mentioned, where should they go?
1: Our website is gardnerandco.co, smartcollaborationaccelerator.com has our psychometric tool on it, and happy for people to link up with me on LinkedIn. We tend to publish a lot of our thought leadership pretty frequently on there and notify people when we've got new articles and case studies, et cetera, coming out. So happy for people to pay attention to any of those resources or just reach out to me directly if they need to learn more.
0: Okay, that's a wrap for today's episode. As always, we really appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, etc. Also, if you like us enough, I hope you leave us a favorable review. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.